around these fires, history and story shall combine. This combination results in the recreation of things considered to be forgotten and then a reclamation by story. Around these fires is where we give voice to the lost and shed light on things that were always meant to shine. At these fires are no dispassionate historians to speak dry words, but instead talkers of historic passions and the people and things they inspired. This is the fire of Anansi, the god of story, and these are the Anansi Chronicles. In 1579, a tall African man, who was maybe a slave, maybe a servant, arrived in Kyoto, a large city in feudal Japan. He was the bodyguard to the Jesuit missionary Alessandro Valignano. The sparsely available historical records only really cover three years of his life. Most historians believe that he may have been from Mozambique, Ethiopia, or perhaps the Sudan. For the people of Japan, however, the African was a wondrous curiosity. It was the first time many of them had seen a black man. And this one, they described as having skin like charcoal, towering at over six feet tall, and possessing the strength of ten men. The people were so enthralled with him that they literally trampled each other to get a view of the giant foreigner. The African's renown was so great that it captured the attention of one of the most powerful feudal warlords of the time, Oda Nobunaga, the great unifier of Japan. Nobunaga at first thought that the African was just a white man who had dyed his skin, and in that initial meeting, the daimyo ordered him to be stripped from the waist up, and Nobunaga's servants tried to scrub away the dye. Nobunaga's curiosity, however, quickly turned to admiration. The stranger was not just a spectacle, but a warrior. Nobunaga thought he must either be a daikokaten, which is a god represented by black statues in Japanese temples, or a guardian demon. Over time, the two men grew close, and Nobunaga granted him the title of samurai. He was the first foreigner and the only black man in all of Japan to receive this honor. Nobunaga also gave to this African warrior the name that has survived the passage of time, Yesuke. Yesuke's strength and intelligence made him an invaluable member of Nobunaga's circle. Together, they rode into battle, defeating the warlord's enemies and increasing his control of Japan. In June of 1582, however, while Nobunaga visited the Ano Temple in Kyoto, mostly unprotected except for Yesuke and a few guards, he was betrayed by his vassal, Akechi Mitsuhide. Yesuke and the guards fought bravely, but were eventually overrun. To avoid capture, Nobunaga gave Yesuke one last order, and then committed seppuku, which is ritual suicide. Nobunaga told Yesuke to take his head and sword which were symbols of the clan's power, to his son, Oda Nobutada. Yesuke was successful in his mission, but eventually Mitsuide also defeated Nobutada. Nobutada followed his father's example and committed seppuku. Yesuke, however, did not. Perhaps he had not embraced this aspect of the Japanese tradition, 
or maybe he was not given the chance. Some historians suggest that Mitsuhide treated Yesuke with scorn and denied him the respect that was traditional among the Japanese warrior class. Yesuke was sent back to live with the barbarians, which is how Mitsuhide referred to the European Jesuits who had originally brought Yesuke to Japan. There are no more records of the African samurai, but of course, that is where history ends and our story begins. The raging wind and rain threatened to drown out the knock at the door. An old missionary shuffled quickly and cautiously towards the entrance. He hesitated for a second, his hand on the heavy metal latch. These were dangerous times in Japan, even for men of God. There was another knock. This time it sounded quicker and more desperate. The old missionary took a deep breath and pulled the door ajar slightly. The door fell open the rest of the way as a middle-aged woman collapsed into his arms. He struggled under her weight, her wet clothes making him shiver. The old man staggered backwards and could feel the woman slipping when a pair of strong hands reached up from above him and picked her up like a child. The hands and the woman they carried were gone before the old man was breathing well enough to say thank you. So instead, he rebolted the door and followed them back down the dimly lit hallway. Soon, the warmth of the fire and the comfort of a few heavy blankets helped the woman regain consciousness. The hallways were busier now with the footsteps and quiet whispers from the other missionaries. Someone brought her some soup and clothes that were meant for a man but were at least dry. As soon as the woman was properly recovered, she started to rave. She demanded to leave. She pushed past the mostly elderly men, ignoring their attempts to calm her down. Those who understood Japanese well enough to interpret her hoarse and strained words could tell that she wanted to return to her village. She could have easily left the missionary at that moment, because none of the Jesuits really had any interest in keeping her there or in the kind of trouble that she seemed to represent. But her loud journey back out into the stormy night was interrupted when she noticed the large man seated in the shadows of the room where she had been carried. He was dressed differently than the others. They all wore the plain European garments typical of missionaries, but this man wore a silk kimono and carried a short sword on his hip. His hair, although coarser and darker than any she had ever seen, was shaved in front and held together in a bun in the back. She did not however need to notice all these things. The man's towering height, muscular body, and charcoal skin were enough to tell her that this was the samurai of the dead daimyo, Nobunaga. This was Yesuke. She immediately stopped her screaming and trashing. She threw herself on the ground before the samurai. The missionaries began to eye her uneasily and muttered to themselves in a language that she did not understand. But her eyes were only focused on Yesuke, Nobunaga's guardian demon. The man's face was hidden in shadow. His long legs folded before him as if he was meditating. But she could feel his piercing eyes on her face. His voice was deep and rumbling, and when he spoke, his perfect Japanese only touched with a slight accent 
he told her to rise, that he was no longer who she thought he was. But the woman did not move. She was Masami, and her husband was dead. He had been killed by raiders who had attacked her village. She fought one of them off and ran for a long time before she reached the missionary. From the shadows, Yesuke told her she should not come to a place of God with vengeance in her heart. At those words, Masami lifted herself slowly off the ground and tried to meet the man's eyes in his dark corner. The room was quiet except for the echoes of the storm outside. With a clear and cold voice that now only contained a hint of desperation, Masami said she had not come for vengeance. The raiders had not only killed, they had taken her children captive along with many other children from the village and chased off the rest of the villagers. From the shadows, Yesuke shifted but did not speak again. Masami waited impatiently, her hands at her side. Still, the samurai was quiet. Finally, one of the old missionaries shuffled over to him and whispered something in his ear. He looked at Yesuke's seemingly unmoving, dark face, and then whispered again, longer and more rapidly than before. Yesuke ignored the old man right next to him, and instead asked Masami if she knew where the children were taken. Masami did not know for sure, but she suspected that the raiders would not brave the storm with their conquest tonight, and would likely be camping close to the village. The old missionary standing next to Yesuke gave a dissatisfied grunt and shuffled away. Without a word, the samurai moved gracefully to his feet. When he was standing, Yesuke loomed at least a foot above anyone else in the room. Yet, he drifted easily as he walked, each step as graceful and deliberate as a dancer. All he said to her was, I will get ready. And then he left the room. Masami breathed out a sigh of relief, sat quietly in a corner, and waited. A long time passed before Yesuke returned, but when he did, a tremor of fear ran down her spine. He wore black lacquered iron-plated armor, and the kusazari wrapped around his ties. At his side, he carried the short wakizashi and the long katana along with a piece of iron that she had never seen before. She expected all these things and knew he would even be more ferocious when he donned the black kabuto helmet. But what made her blood run cold was the orange, red, yellow, and white face paint that transformed Yesuke's face into something terrifying. The man who stood before her was both samurai and something else. Yesuke carried a large sack in his hand, which he asked her to hold. Masami followed him wordlessly past the rows of steering missionaries. The rain was clearing when they stepped outside, and the night was humid and uncomfortable, but Yesuke, in his heavy armor, did not seem to notice. She followed him around the side of the missionary, where a large black stallion waited. The ass wore the same red and black armor as its master, and it stomped the floor impatiently when they approached it. Yesuke took the sack from Masami and attached it to the back of his steed. Then he ran his gloved hand across the horse's head, whispering soothingly in its ear, 
and then he mounted it in a swift single motion. He turned and reached back his hand from Asami. She allowed herself to be lifted up and placed on the horse behind him with ease. Then she told him the way to her village, and he bade her to hold on tight. The stallion was swift, and to Masami, it was like riding the back of the dragon. When they reached the outskirts of the village, her arms and back ached from holding on so tight. Yesuke dismounted and then helped her down. They could see the fires of the raiders' camps nearby. They could also make out the long line of children roped together at the waist. She would wait here. Even as he said the words, Yesuke was placing the kabuto on his head, the snarling helmet only making the man's painted face slightly more terrifying. Masami would not wait, however. She had to make sure that her son and daughter survived. She would go to them while Yesuke did his work. She understood that he would not be able to protect her while she was there. His helmeted head turned to face her, and for a moment she was afraid of what he would do. But then, he just extended his hand once more and lifted her back onto the ass. This time, the stallion truly did feel like a dragon. It snorted and kicked in anticipation of what was to come. But Yesuke did not ride through the camps as she suspected. He reined the eager horse at the first tent and waited as the twelve men gathered their swords and walked out to meet him. Then he dismounted, placing a hand on his katana, but he did not draw it. The men demanded to know who had sent a samurai to challenge what they had acquired in honest combat. Yesuke told them that his masters were all dead. He was no longer samurai, but he had instead become a ronin. He came here on orders from no one, and there would be no one else coming after him. Battle was not necessary, but he had come for the children. They could keep anything else they had found. Most of the men stared at the towering samurai uncertainly, but the one in charge, a man almost as tall as Yesuke and twice as wide, with a large scar across his face, just laughed. Were they to be stopped by one defeated warrior and a woman? They were many, and they were no strangers to combat, even against well-trained men. The others raised their swords, seemingly inspired by his words. Yesuke tightened his grip on his katana, but still did not draw it. Masami saw the line of children in the far corner and began to step backwards towards them, even as the twelve men started forming a large circle around Yesuke. Two men charged first, each from opposite directions, their swords held high, yelling as they ran. Their shouts turned to screams and then wet gurgling noises as Yesuke's katana cleared its sheath and in the same motion sliced the throat of one man before entering the belly of the other. Yesuke's legs were spread wide now and blood dripped onto the wet earth from the blade of the katana that he pointed straight ahead. The others hesitated for a second but when their large leader let out a roar and charged, they followed. Yesuke's blade flashed like lightning in the moonlit night. He deflected swords from behind him, while at the same time somehow attacking the men at both sides and in front. The leader, who charged first, 
I'd managed to knock Yesuke's helmet to the ground, and now he fought with his painted charcoal black face exposed. His expression reflected the calm of a gardener, and he showed no visible strain as the men who surrounded him continued to try and penetrate his defenses. Masami, who had been momentarily mesmerized by Yesuke's grace and skill, now started to make her way towards the children. Behind her, Yesuke was slowly cutting away at his attackers. The two at his back seemed surprised when they fell to the ground, as if they had not noticed the deep wounds in their sides and chest. Then Yesuke decapitated another one. One of the men lost his arm and fell to the ground screaming. The remaining six decided to attack all at once. Yesuke moved like a whirlwind, and four of them crumpled in a wordless heap. Only their leader and one more remained. Suddenly, the leader noticed Masami who was trying to untie the rope that held the children to a nearby tree. He growled to his only remaining man to stop her, and then he swung his sword with such ferocity that Yesuke had to jump backwards to keep from falling. Letting out another growl, the man charged again at Yesuke, forcing him to move further backwards and this time, he almost tripped over a root that stuck out from the ground. Masami, who had been focused on untying the tight knot that held the children, had only just managed to dodge the sword of the man sent to kill her. She grabbed a nearby branch and swung it at his head as hard as she could, but the man's sword just sliced it in two. He charged towards her and raised his sword again, his eyes wide in anticipation and anger. Masami lifted her hands up defensively and held her breath. Suddenly there was a loud crack, followed by a roar. Her attacker fell to the ground as if hit in the back with a hammer. She glanced over at Yesuke. He was pulling his sword from the big leader's belly, and his other arm was stretched in her direction. It held the strange metal stick she had seen him carrying on his hip. Smoke trailed from the open tip. He nodded at her and replaced the metal stick on his side. Masami waited to catch her breath and then hurried over to release the children. The next morning, the sun shone bright. The survivors from the village had come over to eagerly welcome back their children. A few of the men helped Yesuke to burn the bodies of the dead raiders. The villagers fed him and treated him with great respect. But, shortly after noon, Masami noticed the tall samurai over by his horse. He was checking the ropes that held the sack that he had asked her to carry. Masami approached him carefully, partially because he seemed to be enjoying his peace, and partially because she was still afraid of him. She wanted to know if he was returning to the missionary, but he was not. He had been allowed to live there because he had given up the way of the warrior. For two years he had not worn armor or used his sword in battle. Now he had, and there would be many in Japan who would come for him. She meant it when she told him he could stay with them. The village owed him a great debt, but Yesuke just shook his head. Anywhere he stayed would not be safe for long, and he could not hide among these people. Anyone who knew him would immediately know who he was and what he was. She wanted to know where he would go then. He was not sure. He would follow the way of the warrior and hope that it led him to peace. 
he would be a ronin until he became something else. Masami and the others in the village watched Yesuke ride off into the afternoon. She held her children close by, missed her husband, and wondered what it must feel like to be as alone as the only black samurai turned ronin in all of Japan. Yesuke has inspired many pieces of culture, including the animated Afro Samurai, as well as the eponymous Netflix series Yesuke. But not all worthy warriors achieve the same level of fame. And next time we gather, I will tell you the story of a kidnapped African queen who would become a freedom fighter, and in doing so, found a new kingdom. Thank you for visiting our fire and listening to another story. There are many others to tell and I hope you will allow me to keep telling them. As always, you can check the show notes for links to sources on the histories that inspired today's episode. If you enjoy these stories, then help spread the word by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or on YouTube. You can also tell your friends about us. Finally, you can support the show financially if you are so inclined by using the link in the show notes. If you just want to talk, then send an email to anansipod at gmail.com or you can use the links in the show notes to find me on Twitter and Facebook. The Anansi Chronicles is a Precious Metals production.